Welcome to The Workplace, where we're hot on the trail of what makes great workplace cultures tick and what we can all do to make the ones we work in better. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we'll be talking with Davis Smith about capitalism, kayaking, and why giving back is just good business. Join us after the interview for Tangible Takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us and implement in our own workplace cultures. Davis Smith is the founder and CEO of Cotopaxi, an innovative outdoor gear brand with the heart of a humanitarian. Cotopaxi is a certified B Corp, AKA Benefit Corporation, but Davis is a certified badass. He's on the Global Entrepreneurs Council for the United Nations Foundation, was named CEO of the Year by the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, and as his day job, is an angel investor. Davis Smith was interviewed by Katie Clifford, who's one of our new contributors this season. She's a marketing expert and a former Olympian. Ladies and gentlemen, Katie Clifford. Oh, man, there's nothing like being set up to be a huge disappointment. I worked for Olympians. I worked for the U.S. Olympic team. So I could I could um, name a lot of Olympians that I've hung out with. But that is maybe not how many Olympians have you high fived? Oh, thousands. Wow. Literal thousands. Well, I don't that's yeah. not a disappointment at all. <laughs> that's that's great. We'll go with that. So, Davis Smith, now uh, not to call you out, but uh you are kind of a huge fan of Cotopaxi, aren't you? I really am. I had to I had to work hard to keep my cool talking to someone that uh famous in my head. You wore Cotopaxi apparel head to toe, I think, <laughs> while you were interviewing him, is that right? Yeah, I looked very cool. Oh, a little warm, but very cool. Yeah. <laughs> very, very warm. I was not cold. So what was he like in person? And I mean, he's uh, he's pretty well known for, you know, have found, having founded one of the first B Corps ever. But uh, yeah, what was it like? You know, I think the best part about Davis is he's just very genuine. And I, I think the word authentic gets thrown around a lot. But he is the person that you would expect would build a company like that. He has very much as part of his DNA, the need to be socially responsible. And that just really comes across as he talks about his brand. He does not use jargon. He is not talking about, you know, money or or that success in that measure. He's talking about the responsibility that his brand and he as an owner has to the people that work for him and the the countries that they work in and then on out to his customers. So I just was very struck by when you're talking to him, he just feels like a really genuine good guy who's walking the walk that he talks. He's like the nicest capitalist that's he, ever existed. Yes, he's he is the, he's the cuddly capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't think of a better setup than that. Let's uh, let's listen to the interview. 
So corporate responsibility is not something that you've come to recently because it is timely. It feels like it's kind of fundamental to who you are as well. And it doesn't necessarily jive with capitalism as most of us understand it. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how that philosophy, like where did that come from in you? How did that come to be a part of who you are, not just a part of the business that you've built? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's there's definitely a part of like how I grew up that, that shaped my yeah. vision for how I wanted to build a business. And um, I, I grew up in the developing world, um, grew up seeing poverty that most Americans don't even understand exists. Uh, and I knew from the time I was a child, I needed to find a way to help people. And I grew up in a, in a very middle-class home, but my because of my dad's job, we lived in these different places. And um, when I was in college, I knew that that was what I needed to figure out. Like, what were my talents? What was I good at? And how could I use those to help people? And so as I discovered entrepreneurship, that was something that from day one, of my even before day one of my first business, I knew I was I needed to find a way to do that, and it it actually took me to be fair. It took me ten years as an entrepreneur before I figured that out. Uh, my first two businesses, I, I wouldn't say excelled in this area, but it was something that was on my mind constantly, and I was trying to figure that out. Were there companies that you admired that you thought did it well, yeah. or did you feel like you were a maverick out there? No, no, no. There are definitely. So when I s- first started my my first business, I, I knew nothing about entrepreneurship. I I didn't study business in undergrad. Like it was pretty new f- for me. All of this world. Um, but as I um, after I sold that business, I went to business school. I went to the Wharton School, and I that's where I really started learning more about uh, different types of businesses. And you know, I remember doing some case studies on CSR and. You know, CSR really kind of came on the forefront in the 1980s where large corporations started realizing, hey, we need to actually give back. We need to try to make, you know, contribute to our communities because there's positive things that could come to us if we did that. And um, I think we've kind of moved beyond just corporate social responsibility where it's now, it's something that needs to be much more deeply ingrained than that. And even when uh, these businesses have a great CSR campaign, the reality is that their focus is really on maximizing shareholder value. It's on making profit. And that's where I think we need to change the way we think a little bit. And that's what we're trying to do with Cotopaxi. And I, I saw great examples. Uh, a couple of buddies of mine from business school started a company called Warby Parker. And um, they were they were kind of building that social good into their business. And it was a little more on the periphery of their brand. Um, but then there's founders like uh, like, well, Tom Shoes, you know, Blake, the founder of, of Tom Shoes is an amazing example of someone that built that right into the core of, of the yeah. brand. And so looking at examples like those, um, they really inspired me to help me try to think a little bit differently about how, to, how I could build a business. So you had this sort of, we need to be responsible and we need, I need to find a way to help and do good. On the other side of it, you need to build a company people want to work for, right? Like if yeah. you're going to be able to do good, people have to want to be there. So when did you get interested in culture and how did that piece sort of bubble up? So I really started getting more interested in culture as I realized that my businesses um, struggled in different ways and that I could, I could do a better job as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur if I had a better culture. And, you know, my first, I always cared about about people. I wanted people to love where they worked. At the same time, like, I, I just did it by default. I never, it wasn't planned. It wasn't deliberate. It wasn't done by design. We just kind of operated and hoped that, you know, as I treated people fairly and nicely in the office, that they would do the same. And 
the problem is that as, as, as a company scales, um, that doesn't really scale. So um, those things are important, of course, but it has to be a lot more deliberate than it, than it was. And so when I started Cotopaxi, I knew that I needed to do it differently than I had in the past. And so, um, you know, I was, I was in Brazil building my last business when I had the idea for Cotopaxi. Um, I started, I, you know, in, in kind of anticipation of building the business, I, I started building a team of people I knew I needed to go build this brand. Uh, we all met in a cabin here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, not in Salt Lake, I guess outside of Salt Lake. And I flew in from Brazil. Some of these other people flew in from other parts of the country. And we spent a few days at this cabin. And I, uh, you know, we didn't talk about the product. We didn't talk about our go-to-market strategy. We talked about what we stood for. And I laid out a vision for what I wanted this brand to represent. And as part of that, we identified values, values that we wanted to build this brand and our culture around. And we built a very deliberate and intentional culture from day one. We built rituals and traditions around those three core values that we identified. And uh, it was it was incredible the difference that it made in our in our company's culture. We talk a lot about how um, we, you, trying to connect people to the purpose of a company is what helps people stick around. Um, but sometimes that's hard to find a higher purpose. So yeah. you started with a higher purpose and found a company to fit the needs of the higher purpose. Exactly. Which is really, yeah. I feel like a pretty unique yeah. way to do it. Do you have any examples? I think. Um, it's so cool to hear sort of about rituals and other things that companies have developed. Do you have an example and maybe a favorite one that you started with that really people gravitated towards and really worked? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's quite a few. I think some of my favorites are around the, some of the, the rituals and traditions we built around people. So one of our core values is people. And so, um, you know, we have something that we call 10% in the wild time. And you can spend... 10% of your wild, your, your time of the week out in the wild or volunteering in the community. And so we, we started creating a culture where people were looking for opportunities to go serve. And so um, we had a number of our employees that started getting involved with refugees and they were volunteering their time um, working with refugees. Some of our developers created a class where they taught coding to refugees. Um, so they had a 20 week program where on Saturdays they would, they would teach refugees how to code. And um, I, I loved that. I mean, those kind of those kind of experiences are not only impactful within a business context, but they're like life changing experiences. And so, um, you know, one of our other employees had the idea of having refugees write thank you cards for our customers. So I I used to handwrite thank you cards to our early customers, and that didn't scale, obviously. But um, this this employee because we'd built these traditions and rituals around giving and serving and using our time to help others, she came up with this idea of like using refugees, giving them their very first job when they were resettled in Salt Lake City to write thank you cards. And they could write them in their native language since they're still learning English. And we created a job club where we helped them learn how to create a resume, learn how to do a job interview, how to follow up after the job interview. And we've had over 100 refugees go through that program. And it all started because of some of these rituals and traditions that we built around that core value of people. That is so cool. And I will tell you, as a customer, because I have purchased items from Thank your store, you. I've gotten one of those cards. And I actually put it up on my fridge. I thought that was so cool. I love it. Um, that that was – and, you know, I don't usually put things from, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from my bag up on my fridge. But it, but it means something, right? And that's, exactly. that's, that's what's special about a, a business that's built in this way. And frankly, we need to think – you know, if we look back 200 years – um, 94% of the world was living in extreme poverty. 
It's almost everyone on the planet lived on under $1.90 a day in today's dollars. I mean, it's, it's staggering. And when I was born in 1978, that number was 40%. When I graduated from high school, it was 20%. Last year, it was 9%. We are eradicating extreme poverty. And we can do this in our lifetimes. But to get that, those last, let's say, 800, 900 million people on the planet still living in extreme poverty, we have to do something different. And we need businesses, we need capitalism to change. We need businesses to step up and play a role in this because government cannot do this alone. We're seeing that. You know, we know that nonprofits um, are not going to be the only ones that can do that. They can't solve this on their own. But together, if all of us rally together, we can really we can make a difference. You obviously went from a very beginning of a company and you guys have grown quite a bit. Um, has it been hard to scale that culture? Have you seen that there's a change as you add employees and as you get bigger and you do have to sort of be more mindful of the bottom line? Yeah. Um, how has that changed the way you look at culture? You know, it has changed. Um, about two years ago, we were named... Um, the number one company to work for in Salt Lake City by the Deseret News. And I was, which is the local newspaper here. I was so happy. Like that was like the highlight of my life. Like if I could choose any award, that's the word I'd want is the best place to work. And um, about a month later, a month or two later, one of our early employees came to me and said, Davis, I'm, I'm just not as happy as I was in the early days. Like things are changing. And, uh, you know, there's a piece of me that, that thought, wait, did you not see? We're number one. Like, this is a great place to work. But the reality is that it was changing. And, and, you know, some change is okay. Obviously, you know, you join a startup, like, that's the whole point. There is going to be change. Like, you can't join a startup and have all those those fun aspects of growing something but not, not expect change. But I think what I had done wrong was that I, I it wasn't something I was thinking about every day. And I thought, oh, I built this great foundation it's now going to build itself. That just doesn't, that's not true. Like we great, we did build a, a great foundation, but it needed to be something I thought about every single day. And so that's something I've changed. And uh, it's something I literally do think of every single day. We measure it. I, I have a, a, a tool that I use to measure our culture and measure how people are feeling within the organization. I can cut the data based on seniority or tenure in the company, based on gender, based on departments, based on management teams, like I can really understand what's going on. And I, I monitor that every single day. And so that's one of the lessons that I learned was that culture is not something you just build and then uh, it just kind of does its thing. You do have to start early, I think, to build a great culture, but then you have to work on it every single day. It's not a set and forget kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a question that I have. So you and I have had a conversation in the past and um, you told a story that has I have thought about a million times since then and have wanted to kind of uh, dig a little bit into it. So you and some friends took a kayak trip oh, yeah. many years ago. Yeah. And uh, you guys didn't know a ton about kayaking. Uh -huh. So <laughs> you asked an Olympic gold medalist if he in kayaking, yeah. if he would join you. You didn't know him. Am I, is this correct? No. You just cold yeah, Joe, called. Joe Jacoby. Yeah, yes. I didn't know him. Just called the guy and asked, and he went. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had I had this idea of I wanted to kayak from Cuba to Florida, and uh, I'd thought about this for years. Um, I had sp done some paddling sports, but I did not really know how to kayak. In fact, when I decided to do this and I started training. My second day going out, I realized that the first day I'd gone out, I'd been holding the kayak paddle upside down backwards. 
And it was like, no wonder it was so hard because it was really hard. <laughs> and it turns out it was, it was hard the second day too, even though yeah. I was doing it right. But I ended up spending the better part of a year training uh, a lot. Uh, I would go, you know, three or four in the morning and paddle till I had to go to work. And then um, Saturdays I'd paddle, you know, all day long until the night. Sometimes I paddle Friday night all through the night until Saturday. So I was doing my best to train. At the same time, we didn't have the experience that we needed. And so, yeah, we reached out to Joe Jacoby, this amazing Olympic gold medalist kayaker, just one of the most uh, giving and thoughtful people I've ever met. And he immediately was like, I'll do it. Like, I want to join you. And uh, he joined. And so, uh, yeah, we ended up having a an amazing experience kayaking from from Cuba to Florida. So I I love the story. I love that you just reached out to him. But the thing that really struck me was you guys wanted to do this thing and you picked the best per- like why not ask a gold medalist? If you're going to do something, <laughs> go all in. And I yeah. have thought a lot about that in terms of does that uh, does that sort of life strategy translate into your work of let's find the the best person, the best practice. Like how does that I'm, I'm assuming that that's mm. part of who you are, is a, I want to do this thing, I'm going to get the best person. Yeah. H- has that been some th- your philosophy as you hire and train and attract people to your business? Yeah, actually, I love that you're asking this question. Uh, I was just back at the Wharton School speaking to students last week, and I was talking to a bunch of entrepreneurship students, and this is one of the pieces of advice I gave them was, you know, when you're, when you're looking to become an entrepreneur, the best idea is probably not to go partner with like one of your best friends to become business partners to go start something, first identify what the opportunity is, and then go look for the very best person on the planet to help you solve that problem. It's probably not going to be the guy sitting next to you in your class or the, the girl that you really share a lot of passions with around some business idea uh, in school. It's, it's, you know, go identify the opportunity and literally go find the best person on the planet to help you solve it. And it's interesting, like people want to be part of building something. They want to create. One of my favorite quotes uh, is by a man named Dieter Uchtdorf. He says, the desire to create is one of the deepest yearnings of the human soul. And it's true. Like we, all of us want to create something. It might be music. It might be art. It might be cooking. It might be building a business. We all want to create. And so when you give someone an opportunity to create something with you, to go do something and build something with you, people want to do it. They'll leave a big company to come help you start a little startup with a big vision. We have a couple of rapid fire questions now, Davis, that we're going to okay. ask you. So this is like, give me your gut reaction to these. Don't overthink it. <laughs> okay. okay. So what is the last book or article you read that you still think about? Um, I, I read a lot. Uh, <laughs> I, I probably read a few books a month. Oh, wow. I'd say, but the book that I think I, I go back to the most, which isn't one I actually read really recently, but I just, I, I see the book every day because I have it. Uh, on my shelf at, at, at work, uh, it's Endurance. And it's the story of Ernest Shackleton and uh, his um, his expedition to the South Pole. And uh, it's just an amazing, well, I think maybe one of the most amazing stories in human history of, uh, of endurance, of strength, of leadership. And uh, I just find so much inspiration in his story and in that book. So that's one that well, I haven't read it uh, in the last year. It's something that I think of constantly. That's cool. It's it's awesome when you read something that you kind of can go back to over and yeah. over. Um, in one word, how would you describe your ideal workplace culture? In one word. One word. <laughs> um, I would say love. I think everyone 
there's one thing that every human has in common, and that's that they want to be loved. And um, I think I use that word because not only it's not just about caring, but it's about pushing people and stretching people. So it's about, um, you know, if you really love someone, you're going to have that, you're going to be able to give that, that candid feedback. You're going to be able to tell them, hey, like you're not cutting it. And let me, let's, let's figure this out together. Like, how can we, how can we give you the, the, re, the tools or the resources you need? But I think it's always with love first. If you lead with love, like people listen, they want to, they want to perform, they want to do better. And so that's, uh, that's what I use. That's great. That's, that is sometimes the antithesis of what you think about when you think about business is love. I think that's awesome that that's <laughs> what you, how you would describe it. So this one is uh, a two-sided question. What technology should we use more and which technology should we use less in your opinion? Oh, these are so hard. <laughs> Let me think. <laughs> You've given two great answers. So I have okay. really high expectations for this one. Um, I would say uh, technology we, that we should use less is our smartphones. And I'm like, I'm really guilty of this. Um, we just need to learn to put them down. And I'm speaking to myself because I need to do this more. Um, and I think the thing that we should use more is, I would say, also our smartphones. But it's the telephone part of it. It's like picking up the phone and calling someone. I have a couple friends that pick up the phone and call me randomly. Like it's not on my calendar. They just call me. I love those people. They mean so much to me because I, I know they care. Like the fact that they would just call me means they're thinking about me, that they care about me. And so I, I want to be more like them. And so I'd say a smartphone and smartphone. I agree with you. I always think I'd rather people text, but then someone calls and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. conversation. It means so much. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a really easy one as your last one. Uh, who are your heroes? Uh, so I would say can I, I can do more than one. Yeah, heroes. Okay. <laughs> um, I'd say first would be – well, this is in no particular order, actually okay. – uh, one of my earliest heroes was a man named Steve Gibson. And he was an entrepreneur who around probably close to 60 years old sold his business. And he and his wife moved to the Philippines and started an organization that taught entrepreneurship to people living in poverty. And uh, they had never lived outside the United States. They didn't know any foreign languages. They could have just gone and retired in Hawaii and enjoyed the rest of their lives and instead, they like they lived in a small little apartment, and they worked on changing people's lives. And he has been one of my greatest inspirations. He's the reason I'm an entrepreneur. He encouraged me to become an entrepreneur. He said he saw something in me that I should become a great. I, that he thought I'd be a great entrepreneur. Turns out he actually tells everyone that I think. So I'm actually I wasn't special, but he gave me a lot of, of confidence. And and uh, he's one of my heroes. I would say another one would be, I'll just do this one more. I have a long list. Like it could be, include my parents and also my sure, wife and others, yeah. right? But I'll, I'll say um, my co-founder. Um, my co-founder, Stefan, he's our COO. Uh, you know, we met in business school. He's, he's from Germany and uh, was in the German Special Forces, worked at McKinsey, the consulting firm, um, worked for a nonprofit in Indonesia, giving back. He just has a huge heart. And then when we graduated from business school, he was a CEO of a company of his own that he, that he raised venture capital for, that he exited. And when I was building this, he contacted me and said he wanted to help me build it. And he 
is our COO. You know, he's kind of behind the scenes. He's not the face of our brand. And he's so humble that he just, it doesn't matter to him. He just wants to be part of building something and he cares about our mission. And so for me, he's my hero. I love working with him. I mean, six years that we've been working together, he's just been someone that's made me better, lifted me up, and I just, uh, he'd be one of my heroes. That's great. That's Those are really good qualities in a partner, somebody they who are. helps you be better. Well, this has been delightful. Such great answers. So fun to talk Thank to you. you. Thank you so much, Davis. We really appreciate pleasure. you Thank being great here Great questions. Thank you very much for <laughs> having me. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we take big ideas out for a joyride through the streets of Chicago in our father's cherry red 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California and help them find the confidence to finally stand up to him. The first is that doing good is good for business. Big-name B Corps like Patagonia, Allbirds, Lisa, and Warby Parker are living proof that B Corps can turn a profit, then turn around and use that profit to improve people's lives. Sure, there's still businesses, but they're a new breed of business, one that recognizes their role in society, respects their privilege, and embraces the power they have to affect change. And while we can't all follow in their footsteps, we can at least follow their example. Most companies give back in one way or another, but how can we integrate it into our workplace cultures? Food for thought. The second is that strong workplace cultures embrace rituals and traditions as opportunities to deepen the connection to their core values. Cotopaxis is their 10% wild time, which employees can use for whatever they want, as long as it's spent volunteering or giving back to the community which is notable not just for its generosity, but its clear connection to their company value. Take a look around. You likely already have rituals and traditions. Sometimes all it takes is being a little more vocal about them to get people engaged, participating, and giving back. The third is that if this episode inspires you to do some good, consider volunteering to do some local trail maintenance. Our trails connect us to the natural world, and taking care of them is a great way to give back to your community in a tangible, meaningful way. Plus, you get to wear one of those big, floppy-brimmed hats and wipe your brow with a jaunty bandana while saying things like, Hooey! I'm Plum Tuckered! That's it for this episode of The Workplace. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was written and produced by yours truly, with editing and original music by Daniel Foster Smith, who also composed our theme song. If you have a burning question about workplace culture, or a story about why your workplace culture is the best, or worst, send it to theworkplace at octainer.com.
The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, visit octanner.com.